Today on Pilot's Discretion, our guest is pilot and economist Patrick Chovanek. He talks about learning to fly during the pandemic, the role of home flight simulators, and good economics jokes. Pilot's Discretion starts right now. Welcome, Pilots. I'm your host, John Zimmerman of Sporties, and thanks for listening. Remember, you can visit sporties.com slash podcast for show links and complete archives. And always feel free to send your comments, podcast at sporties.com. Today, I'm joined by Patrick Chovanek, a writer and economist who is known as one of America's most knowledgeable commentators on China. After working in Washington, he spent over a decade living in Beijing before moving back to the U.S., where he is currently an economic advisor for Silvercrest Asset Management. Most importantly for this podcast, Patrick learned to fly in 2021, and he has just released a new book about that process titled Cleared for the Option, A Year Learning to Fly. Patrick, welcome to Pilot's Discretion. Thank you very much. It was really good to be here. I enjoyed reading your book, and I thought one line in particular stood out. You wrote early on, unlike some people I've met, I don't have flying in my bones. What I do have, perhaps like you, is a fervent curiosity about the world and a willingness to step outside my comfort zone. That prompted uh, prompted a lot of questions for me, uh, the first of which is how we as a flight training industry talk to prospective and new pilots. Are we too focused, do you think, on attracting people who have a personal connection to aviation? Are we somehow unintentionally exclusive in our outreach? Well, I think that's the natural path. If you know somebody, if especially if you have a parent who was a pilot, um, then you're kind of part of that world. And for the rest of us, we're not. And, and aviation is pretty intimidating. Um, you know, I, I was into my fifties before I ever imagined that I would learn to fly. Obviously I've flown all my life, but, uh, I would say I was probably a nervous flyer because I kind of like to know what's going on around me. And I, and I, and I didn't really, um, you know, it's, for, for most of us, flying is just a magic carpet ride and you get in and somebody works their magic up in the cockpit and then hopefully you land and everything goes, goes on. And it was, you know, the reason I wrote this book was about how interesting and challenging and revealing it was to break through that barrier. Um, and I, I don't think that you know, flight schools are doing anything wrong in that sense. Um, but I think that a lot of people don't realize how accessible it can be, whether they want to pursue it or not. Um, I just think that a lot of people like me assume that it's just out of reach. I'm interested also in the part you talk about there of stepping outside your comfort zone. There's a line of thought out there that in general, people today are less willing to do that. Our culture is more risk averse. Uh, we're not subject to some of the same hardships that maybe previous generations did. And, and I don't want to, you know, wander off into a kids these days uh, rant, but do you think there's an element of truth there that that aviation is one of those last things that does seem challenging and difficult and yes, fa- includes some risk. And do we need to think about how we talk about that? I don't know about the big picture and whether we've become risk averse or things like that, but I do know that if you think back to sort of the, the golden age of general aviation was the 1950s. And that's where, you know, everyone was going to become a pilot. And we were going to commute to work, you know, in planes. So everybody's going to have a plane. 
And you think kind of what the foundation of that was, was that it was, it was World War II. And it was the fact that a lot of people learned to become pilots uh, to, fu- to fight in World War II. A lot of them actually ended up not fighting. Um, they were trained and then the war ended and they didn't have their fill of aviation yet. And so they went out and they, they bought a plane. Um, and we don't have, you know, <laughs> we had, of course, a lot of people got to get into aviation through the military, but, but that window is becoming smaller and smaller as we have military downsizing and also more and more, um, remote flown planes, you know, people, uh, drones and things like that. And so I think a lot of the foundation for people getting into aviation, you know, the, the fallback is, you know, someone and, and unless you do, um, it's, it's a foreign world. I think it's interesting that you didn't learn to fly because you wanted to be an airline pilot or even really travel by airplane. And I think a lot of times we fall into that of, oh, everybody's learning to fly because they have some specific mission, it's career, or they've got a trip they want to make. But I think I see in our flight school here at Sporties, most people who walk in the door just want to learn to fly because of the challenge or the view or the enjoyment or the fun of it. It's not they have a specific mission. So uh, how about that part of it? Do we underrate just the the joy and the challenge of it? Maybe get caught up sometimes in the practical parts of it. I I saw an interview with Harrison Ford, and he was talking about how he got to learn how to fly, and he said, and he did it I think around the same time I did in his fifties, and he said, um, I hadn't really had a challenge in a long time. I hadn't learned anything new, um, and. I wanted to see whether I could learn something more than just lines and rise to that challenge and master something. And I would say that that was a lot of what drove me once I got into it. Um, And it's a lot of what drove me to write a book about it because um, when people say, well, why why did you write a book? I said, you know, about learning to fly, which is of interest to some people, but not others. I said, "I, I think it should be of interest to a lot of people because it's about learning a discipline. And how you know very often when we're you know in our teens and twenties we we're in learning mode we're we're gathering all those oh those skills that someday we're going to employ. By the time we get to be forty or fifty, we we assume that those are sort of we never even had to learn those things. They're just things that we know, and everyone should know. And if they don't know, well, they're kind of probably not very competent. And of course, it's it's just a small slice of the skills that we could possibly learn in life. And it, there is something about sitting down next to somebody who's half your age, who knows how to fly a plane, you don't, uh, and learning from them. And not learning instantly, learning over a period of time in which you're making mistakes and you're struggling and you're trying to wrap your mind around it and see what they see and you can't. Um that's both humbling, but also uh, gives you a real sense of accomplishment when you've done it and you look at other challenges differently. So, you know, that isn't how I got into doing it, but it is, I think, why I persisted in it, even when it became, you know, challenging and difficult and not always pleasant. Yeah, that is the big reward on the other side. I think so many pilots find that, that that's, as you said, not the initial attraction, but we sometimes get pretty comfortable as we get older and it's great to be a student again. It's great to feel humble. It's great to really stretch that the, the mind, work the muscle of, of learning something. 
but one thing I know comes with being an older uh, beginning pilot is the safety factor. You've got family uh, that you might not be thinking about when you're 17 or 18 learning to fly. And you wrote in your book that you did not have the quote, big safety talk with your family before you started training. You just sort of did it. And it, and it didn't become an issue for you. But I wonder what your advice would be to a new student pilot, especially one later in life. Should you have that talk early on? Um, it's interesting, you know, when, when somebody asked me that, I, I had already written the book and somebody was looking at it as an editor and they asked me, well, did you have that talk? You should talk about that. I said, Ooh, I, I didn't, maybe I should have, maybe my wife's kind of <laughs> mad at me that I didn't. And, um, I asked her and she said, uh, no, I, I know you, uh, I know that you're not a risk seeking person and I'm pretty confident that the people that you are teaching you are capable, um, She's known that I, I've traveled around the world a lot and I've gone to places that, you know, haven't always been a hundred percent safe. And so I could, you know, I had, a, I have a pretty good risk uh, barometer in my head about I'm comfortable or I'm not comfortable. So, so she was comfortable with that, but I would say that it's, it is one of the reasons why they call a discovery ride, discovery ride and, and encourage family members to come along because, you know, for a lot of people, you, you, they, you do want your um, family and your loved ones to be confident that you are in safe hands and that you're doing something that isn't crazy and is kind of exciting. And the more that they can participate in that with you, the better. Um, the, learning to fly can be lonely um, because a lot of the people around you don't really understand what you're going through or what you're learning and the frustrations that you're experiencing if they're not already in aviation. And it's funny because my wife didn't read the book until well after I had read, uh, written it. <laughs> and then she sat down and she read it. She's like, wow, you know, I didn't know you were learning all these things and doing all these things and she kind of appreciates it now. And I think that, you know, if I, if I had an advice for people, I'd say bring those people in sooner rather than later. Um, so that it may not be up there with you necessarily, but at least they can kind of appreciate what you're doing and also, you know, the, the, the risk and reward portion of it. Another key theme in your book was the role of, height, of uh, home flight simulators during training. I know it was really kind of the initial spark for you that got your interest going during the pandemic, but you also used it regularly during training. It wasn't just a, a game to, to light that spark. So tell us what a home sim was good for for you as a student pilot. Again, not just the fun, but what was valuable from a training standpoint? So I should probably explain how I got into learning to fly because you just alluded to that and we haven't mentioned it. And, and, and it, it's interesting because I was stuck at home during COVID, loved to travel, couldn't travel, and was looking online on YouTube with my son and we saw promotional videos for Microsoft Flight Simulator 2020, which was coming out. And, and I said, wow, you know, that's kind of a cool way to see the world that I can't do right now, but I'd have to learn how to fly a plane, even on, even on the computer screen. I'm not so sure I can really do that. And I said, okay, I'm going to take the plunge. I bought the computer, bought the equipment, um, and started to learn. And the more I learned, the more questions I had. And I ended up you know, I watched some YouTube videos and whatnot, but I ended up buying Sporty's uh, Learn to Fly course, Ground School, 
not because I actually intended to learn to fly, but because I was just curious. I just wanted to know the answers to these questions. And of course, in the videos, they're telling you, well, when you get up with your instructor and when you actually do this, I'm like, well, they kind of expect me to do this. So maybe I should, maybe I should give it a try. And that's what I ended up doing. Of course, so, so one thing is that, you know, we talked about the barriers to becoming interested. There are a lot of people flying flight sims and sitting there wondering whether they could do it for real. And of course, all it really takes is a phone call to say, I want to go out and take a first lesson. And maybe they like it, maybe they don't. But I do think that's one thing that could potentially lower the barrier to people becoming, in, becoming involved and in doing it in real life. To get to the rest of your question, which is how I used it during training, you know, when I first mentioned doing flight sims and then how that got me into aviation, a lot of pilots were like, oh, okay, well, you know, I don't really do flight sims because they're not really that realistic and doesn't really give you a feel for the plane. And of course, I think that there are elements of that that they're absolutely true. There's nothing like, you know, having the ground really come at you. But... I think these things have evolved in leaps and bounds so that a lot of assumptions that people had maybe five, 10 years ago just aren't true anymore. I found it immensely helpful. Um, so, you know, when you're learning to land, right, you go and you can maybe do three, four, five circuits. The, the direction that you're landing depends entirely on the way the wind is blowing that day. If, if it's, the weather is off, you can't, you can't practice at all. And I could go every day and do, you know, three one way, three the other in the sim just to kind of get that down, to get the pacing down. Because uh, a lot of what you're doing is just the passage of time in the sense of like, oh, I should be doing this now or, and, and setting off flags about what, what should be happening next and getting that sight picture and seeing what it looks like. And I could take screenshots of the flight, pic the, the sight picture. And, and so I could compare. Um, there were so many things that I could do on the flight sim. And it was photorealistic in a way that wasn't before. You know, a lot of pilots told me, well, it's good for practicing procedures when you're getting your instrument training because you don't really care what's out the window. You're just looking at what's in front of you. I think it's fine for, for VFR now. Before I flew my, um, well, first of all, just doing the circuits, I mean, I could see all the, the, the landmarks that I normally use to, to, um, to decide, you know, when I'm going to, what, what's, what's going to happen next. I, all those things were there, um, in the sim and it, they may not look a hundred percent realistic, but they were recognizable. And then when I, um, did my solo cross countries, I pre-flew them. And I, when I pre-flew them, I looked for where are the uh, where are the checkpoints that I can identify from the air. Sometimes I saw things that I wouldn't have seen on a chart um, that I could easily recognize. And then sometimes when I came back, I actually I took a photo when I was there, and I took a, a screenshot when I was in the sim, and I I can I compared them and I posted them online and asked people to choose which one was the real one, and. They couldn't tell, or at least it was darn close. Is it exactly the same? No. Um, is the flight model 100% correct? Not always, but maybe a second or two off. But, you know, that the same is true when you're flying uh, in different kinds of weather. 
I would say that the difference between flying a, a Cessna 172R in Arizona and a Cessna 172S in New Jersey was greater than the difference between flying it in the sim, which is astonishing to me, but was true. Yeah, that's an amazing way to put it. Uh, I think you're right. They've come a long way and things like a VFR cross country, actually practicing pilotage or even dead reckoning in the sim is possible now to some extent. I think yes. it's also noteworthy. You added two elements that a lot of pilots overlook. Uh, you mentioned using both some of the online air traffic control simulator tools and also using your iPad, and your EFB app with the simulator, which to me is a key part of really making the sim more than just looking out the window, but integrating more realistic procedures. Tell me about that part of it. Yeah. So, you know, I use ForeFlight and, and it links up to Microsoft Flight Simulator so that it, it it basically mimics as though you are actually in the plane and it receives signals as though you were getting it from ADSB. And so I could sit there, fly, you know, different cross countries in the sim and have my iPad on my lap like I would in the cockpit and referencing it. And what how that helped was it, it was second nature to me then when I when I was in the cockpit, how to use it, all the features, all the things that I could access. It wasn't distracting like I'm learning a new system while I'm flying. Um, I could learn it on the ground and then use it in the air. Um, the other thing that I did was Pilot Edge, and there's also VATSIM, which is free, but Pilot Edge, which is a subscription service that you are flying on Microsoft Flight Simulator, or I think they have a, you can use the other flight sims as well. And you're talking to a real air traffic controller and they have these um, flights set up, training flights set up so that you can prepare the flight, prepare what you're going to say, the different encounters that you're going to have, and then and then fly it. And of course, it's not going to work out exactly as it was scripted because you're doing it in real time and you're talking to a real person, which is very different from you know, talking to an AI air traffic control or uh, or just reciting or listening to, you know, the, the classic way of learning was simply listening to air traffic control and watching what people do. But that doesn't put you on the spot. And this puts you on the spot. And I found that immensely useful to get over the stage fright uh, and to start recognizing the patterns and the deviation of patterns. Because at first, I can tell you, I mean, even well into my training, I found talking to air traffic control very intimidating. Um, I, I learned at a non-towered airport, and I was told by a CFI, well, people who learn at non-towered airports are terrified of towers, and people who are, learn at towered airports are terrified of non-towered airports. And so I was in that first category, and it, it helped me really get over that hump. Patrick, let's take a quick break, and we'll be back with some more questions. Earn all your pilot ratings and keep your flying skills sharp with Sporty's Pilot Training Plus. This all-inclusive membership unlocks Sporty's complete library of award-winning video courses so you can learn anywhere you have your phone, tablet, or laptop. For one annual fee, you get access to over $1,500 in courses, a smart investment in your flying career. Plus, enjoy free shipping every day of the year at sporties.com and apply for one of our three annual flight training scholarships. Learn more at sporties.com slash pilot training. Now, back to pilot's discretion. 
We are back with Patrick Chovanek, whose day job is an economist. And Patrick, sometimes it feels like general aviation defies the laws of economics, you know, half million dollar Cessna 172s and things like that. So is there an economic concept that explains uh, the air, the market, at least for new piston airplanes? Is it something fancy like, you know, regulatory capture or Baumol's cost disease, or is this just good old fashioned supply and demand at work here? Well, it's always supply and demand, but there's, there's, you know, that that exists in a context, and the context here is yes, it's, you know, it's a highly regulated environment. There was the liability issue for a very long time, um, which, um, you know, which added significant costs of doing business for for general aviation manufacturers. I think there's also a demand issue, which harkens back to something that I was talking about. In the first half, which is that, you know, the golden age of aviation in the 1950s was fueled by the fact that you had a lot of trained pilots. You had a lot of people who could step right into cockpit and fly and were motivated to do so. And now, you know, there's a significant hurdle of that. So it's just not as big of a market. 80%, I'm told, of people who begin to learn to fly drop out and don't get their license. And if that's your market that you're selling into, obviously that's a pretty constrained market then, or much more constrained than it potentially could be. So I haven't studied it as an economist. I'm familiar with some of the issues, but I'm more familiar with it as a potential customer. And I've got my license, but I'm not buying a plane Mm -hmm. at this moment. Um, It would be a significant opportunity cost for me to do so. I live in the city. It's hard for me to use it as much as I would need to for it to make economic sense. And I would have to give up lots of other things in my life that I don't want to. And do I regret that and wish that wasn't the case? Yeah. But it is a real challenge to go out there and, you know, half a million dollars is just the starting point because that's before you talk about all the costs of actually owning it. So it's a, if it is a hobby, it's a sure is an expensive hobby. I don't have to tell, you know, your listeners that. Yeah, you're you're right about the long shadow of World War II. That uh, you see that once you start looking for it, you see it everywhere in general aviation. The airports that were built in months uh, in the '40s as training fields that we still use, uh, airplane designs, uh, airplane training, uh, no doubt, uh, long, long shadow there. But what's interesting on the positive side of that is that you know when you do learn to fly, I'm a big history buff, and I immediately felt that connection to people who had learned all the way back you know, to the Wright brothers that when, you know, if you pick up stick and rudder, the book, it was written in 1944. It's still describing how we fly today. And, you know, there are a few differences with the arrival of tricycle gear and things like that, but not a heck of a lot in terms of how you actually fly. So you could read that book like it was written a few years ago and it makes sense. And that sense of connection, I went, Uh, when I was trying to learn how to land and I was really struggling, I I went up um, to uh, Hammondsport, New York, upstate New York, where Glenn Curtis flew for the first time publicly. Wright Brothers had flown privately and kind of kept it under wraps and he flew the first public flight. And, you know, these guys kind of had to figure it out as they were going along. So I I felt like, okay, if these guys could figure it out, maybe I can. And and that sense of connection to history, I found to be very encouraging and also fascinating. 
That's a great point. You know, it's also something you see and you sense when you travel by light airplane. I think it's one of the great joys of flying in a small airplane, low and slow that, you know, in an airliner, you sit down in seat 14A and everybody wants the shades shut and you really don't know what you're flying over. We've lost some of the sort of the, the fun and the history of old style train travel where you, you went through cities and towns and villages and countryside and you can get some sense of that in an airplane and you can get some sense of the aviation history. You landed a fuel stop that's a quiet airport in the middle of nowhere and you realize just looking at the diagram that it was once a military training airport in World War II and maybe there's even a hangar there from that time. So there, there is that real connection to history that I think you don't get in many other forms of transportation. And, and that's one of the reasons I wrote this, not just for people learning to fly, um, but also for the general public, because there is, there's so much that we overlook. You know, we, we take flying for granted. We, we get in there and, and we look out the window and, you know, eat, eat our pretzels and, and we don't think about what an incredible thing it is um, to be able to defy gravity in this way. And then when you do think about it, you kind of get nervous. Like, how is this even possible? And we should be crashing. And and um, when you go through the process of learning it, you begin to appreciate it. And and you begin to see the air as something not insubstantial, as something very substantial. Um, and to be able to share that with people who might not see that perspective, just so that they kind of see it through, diff- see their own flying through different eyes and understand it a little bit better, that was also part of my motivation. Patrick, I couldn't have you on the show and not ask you at least one question on China. It's a subject you spent your life really studying, uh, writing about, talking about, living there. I'm interested, of course, on the aviation angle, as always. So I've been around long enough to remember 10 or 15 years ago when China was the next great market for general aviation. and, And lots of companies were putting lots of money into that, or at least lots of press releases into that. I think it's safe to say that boom never happened. It never got even really close. Avi- aviation certainly a large industry in China in the commercial sense, but on the uh, smaller side, nothing really happened. Why not and will it ever happen or is it just fundamentally not a match for that, that country and its culture and politics and economics? It, it's all about airspace and control of airspace. And um, you know, even when you fly commercially in China, you'll sometimes get these inexplicable delays and they'll say that it's weather. And you know it's not because when you finally do fly, there's no weather along your route at all. Uh, and you'll call up you know, your destination and say, how is it there? And they're like, oh, it's blue skies, it's great. It's the military. Um, and they've suddenly decided without telling anybody uh, what they're doing that you know this, this area is off limits and, or you have to go all the way around it and then, or you have to wait. So even for commercial aviation, which is a big priority in China, um, it's tough. And then, of course, it's not a big priority. I mean, it, yes, it's in the five-year plan, and they said they were going to do that. I, I was looking up something that said that there's like 41 flight schools in the whole country. Now, I'm, I'm sure they're big, um, but that is kind of how they do things. And they're, they're looking at, when they're thinking about training pilots, they're not thinking, oh, get into aviation, do what you want, and, you know, if you want to make a career out of it, good. You know, they're like, do you want to become a pilot? We'll train you to become a pilot. And then, you know, that then you'll go to work for one of our airlines. And then that that's that's that because that'll meet an economic goal. So, you know, the the whole freedom of the skies thing, that's not that's not how they look at their skies. And and I do think that the part of it was a push among, you know, some of the wealthy tycoons to 
have access to maybe, you know, private air transportation. But even that under Xi Jinping has kind of taken a back seat. I mean, these guys are more worried about being arrested, you know, for corruption and whatnot than they are about what their next toy is. So, or what their next convenience is. So, um, yeah, I think that's the reason why it never took off. Now, interestingly, there are Chinese uh, investors did make investments, sometimes controlling investments in American general aviation companies like Cirrus um, or Icon, and which now is raising, you know, concerns on this side of of the ocean about what what that means that the Chinese might you know have control over those kind of companies. So, especially you know as the tensions rise between the United States and China, any any prospect of um, general aviation being you know anything other anything other than kind of being roadkill at the side of the road i'm not i'm not that confident i mean of course commercial aviation is a huge priority in china but that's a whole different story all right we always like to end these episodes with our ready to copy segment this is a series of rapid fire questions on a wide variety of topics so you're a new yorker you can handle it are you ready to copy ready to copy What's the biggest myth about learning to fly? One that you learned was wrong during your training? That the CFI is God. That you, you should probably go with a couple different CFIs because they all have, many of them are young, uh, not horribly experienced. I mean, they've gone through a process, but they, but, you know, they haven't seen it all and they're going to have different perspectives and it's good to get different perspectives. You learned to fly in a pretty short runway at Lincoln Park there in New Jersey. Do you think that was a good thing and you got really great at short fields or was that a bad thing and you stressed about it as a new pilot? It was a good thing because it gave me a huge amount of confidence when I could land at a normal size runway. It did push off the time that I could do my first solo um, because landing on a short runway, I mean, you really got to have precision control over what you're doing. And that was going to be the circuit that I did. But, but, uh, you know, in in, um, in dodgeball, they have that, that movie. They said that if you could dodge a wrench, you could dodge a ball. Well, if you could dodge a wrench, you could dodge a ball. So if you could if you could land on a small runway, you can land on any runway. Great advice. What's your advice for a prospective pilot who lives in a big city like New York, where the nearest airport may not be just around the corner? There's some logistical challenges there, right? What uh, any hacks there you learned? consider moving. <laughs> uh, it's tough. It, 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 New York is the worst place in the world to learn how to fly. Um, I initially called some uh, flight school in Florida and said, could I come down for a month and learn and just pack it all in? And they said, no, we don't really don't recommend that. You know, I, I, I would question that advice. I, I think maybe going somewhere um, and it may not be all in one go, but, you know, trying to take a week at a time and actually get some flying in somewhere where it's sunny all the time and you don't have to travel an hour to get to the airport uh, outside of, you know, the, the highly congested airlines. I think it's worth it. And actually, it doesn't even cost that much more because you're going to be spending a ton just to get out to the airport. So if you're in an urban area, I would say going somewhere to learn to fly is an option you should seriously consider. What's your preferred flight simulator setup? What do you fly with at home? Well, I just upgraded. Um, so I'm on a PC. I'm not, you know, doing uh, Xbox. I, uh, you know, I wanted to learn how to fly. So I bought all the stuff. So I bought a real yoke, honeycomb yoke, honeycomb um, throttle, 
quadrant. I actually have bought a number of different things to, you know, sticks and, and, and other throttle quadrants to replicate other kinds of airplanes, because that's one of the interesting things about being on a flight sim is you can try out other kinds of airplanes, including historic airplanes. And, um, you know, to kind of give it myself a more realistic perspective, I do that. I didn't even mention before about uh, a VR helmet. I did get a VR helmet. It is, the resolution isn't it great. You can't take screenshots of what you're doing. But um, I found, especially when learning to land, the, the sensation was completely different when you had the VR helmet on and you really felt like you were coming in for a landing, whereas on a screen, you, you don't. Um, so I've just upgraded to like a 4080 uh, NVIDIA card. It not and now it runs nice and smooth. It's a now of course, then they're gonna come out with the new one that's gonna, you know, outstrip all the all the equipment. So software's way ahead of hardware. You're always playing catch up with hardware. What's your best tip for a new flight sim pilot, particularly a mistake they should avoid? Is there a, a trap that they should try to avoid that you made? For a flight sim pilot or for, for a actual new pilot, pilot who wants to use a flight simulator uh, as a part of their training as you did? I would say it's it's look it's a fun game if you want to just treat it as a game and you want to take the outside view and look you know play it like a game but um but if you're serious about it get the equipment you know get the rudder pedals and um and then treat it seriously that's why I bought the learn to fly course that's why I did the ground school because I could fly around and do all kinds of crazy stuff but if I wanted to learn how they did it right then I I had to take the ground school. And so that's where I would say you could treat it as a game or you could treat it as a, as a real thing. And of course, if you're treating it as a real thing, then you know, buckle up because you've got it interesting right ahead <laughs> of you. Let's go outside of aviation for a few. You, as you mentioned, are a world traveler. So what's an underrated place that uh, more of us should know about as a place to travel? Oh my gosh. I mean, how I, I can't even begin to, to list. Um, Azerbaijan was fascinating. Albania, um, Haiti was interesting. I wouldn't recommend going there unless you, that, that was a point where I was a little bit over my comfort level in terms of risk aversion. What I do is a deep dive. Before I go to any country, I start reading books about it, novels about it, all kinds of stuff. And I have to say anywhere is interesting. And, and my, you know, my take these days is to go somewhere, a city, even, a, you know, in a well-known country like Europe, uh, you know, like Germany or, or Spain. And focus on a particular region and the area around it. Really explore it. That's that's what I like to do because you will find so many things that are not in the tourist brochures. Where is the best place to visit in China for an American who's never been before? Chengdu. Uh, it's a city in the well. It's not the far west of China, but it's farther west than most people get. Um, it's known for its food. It's a very relaxed pace of life. It's in a, it's a big city, but it's in a fairly rural area. And you'll see a different side of China that you won't see if you go to Beijing or Shanghai um, that is much more rural, much more inward looking um, than these kind of port cities. And that's where I, I actually worked there for a little while. And I'd recommend it to anybody. The food is excellent. In 2021, you took a two-week road trip with your son following the route of the Oregon Trail. What'd you learn from that experience? You know, anything that connects you with history, 
Um, I did it with my son and that was fantastic to spend two weeks together with him uh, as he's growing up. You know, travel's always been a big priority in my family. One of the reasons why we did this was because he had been reading a book and I, of course, grew up with the Oregon Trail PC game. See, look, I, uh, when I play games, I go out and do these things always. So, yeah, I mean, it's another way that the computer games got me into something in real life. Uh, we did have a breakdown, you know, that you can't do the Oregon Trail without. We punctured two tires and got stranded in eastern Oregon for a day. But uh, it was fascinating. And you know what I went and did afterwards? I went and I flew it on the sim and got a whole different perspective on it. And actually, when I travel these days, I, I, I my son and I went to Mexico just recently and we drove outside of Mexico City and around. And I, I flew the whole flight, uh, the whole the whole route in the flight sim. And it was fantastic because I, I knew what to expect. I knew what the landscape was going to look like. I saw things that I want maybe go out of my way to go see. I remember driving along with him and we saw this little tiny volcano. And I said, I saw that. I've seen that before. I know exactly what that is. I know exactly where we are. So we're, we're kind of entering an interesting world where the virtual world and the real world combine. And I think the danger, of course, is that people can get lost in a virtual world. But for me, it's been a way to connect with things that I never would have done or maybe would have done differently if I hadn't done it virtually first. That's such a great suggestion, I think, for so many people is to use that virtual, uh, digital world to go explore the real one. It doesn't have to be either or. Uh -huh. All right. Economists are known for their dry wit. Some might call it Saharan even. Uh, do you have a good economics joke you can share with us in parting? Well, here's one that pilots will get. What's the first law of economics? Every economist has an opposite and equal economist. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's so there you go. Sort of like the I can't remember which president famously said, "I need a one-handed economist, right, so they can stop saying on the other hand." <laughs> so that's the that's the equivalent, right? So whenever I say there's going to be somebody out there who's going to say exactly the opposite with equal conviction and knowledge. Our last question is always the same on pilot's discretion. You have one final flight, and we want to know what are you flying and where are you going. I want to fly a Spitfire, and I want to fly it over the English Channel. And that's just, I hope I get to do that. I mean, there are these ones that are two-seaters that they let you go up in. Uh, I would love to do that someday. That's a fantastic answer. Spitfire, White Cliffs of Dover, sign me up. I'll get, I'll get the type rating and fly with you. <laughs> that sounds good. Patrick, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Pilot's Discretion, brought to you by Sporties, training and equipping pilots worldwide for over 60 years. For more episodes and today's show links, visit sporties.com slash podcast. I'm John Zimmerman. We'll see you next time on Pilot's Discretion. Discretion.